0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, um, April the 21st, 2023. I'm not sure why, but my show has suddenly become... Um, a platform, an interesting salon, if you like, to discuss children's books or teenage books. Um, last week, we had Jarrett Krakoshka on the show, uh, who has a new book out uh, for 9- to 12-year-olds called Sunshine, a graphic novel about how children can learn self-confidence and escape um, not just the anxiety but uh, the brutality of their uh, Personal and family life. And then a couple of weeks before that, we had Brian Selznick, who's a heavy hitting uh, graphic artist in the US. He has a new book out for kids called Big Tree, which is an environmental book. Um, And we are continuing that theme today with uh, another very, very important book, actually published by Scholastic, like the Krakoshka book. It's called I Kick and I Fly. It's by my guest. Uh, Richira Gupta. Uh, it's directed to uh 12 to 18 year olds, grades seven to 12, and is on uh an incredibly important subject the trafficking of young girls. Uh, Richira is joining us from her home in New York City, uh, on the east side up by my old stomping ground, first and 50th Street. Uh, Richira divides her time between uh manhattan and uh india she has four months a year she lives in india on the border of nepal uh richira before we talk a little bit about the book tell us about yourself because i think once we understand who you are and what you've spent your time doing some of our viewers and listeners will be familiar with you i kick and i fly will become more uh logical
1: I used to be a journalist and I worked uh, in the Telegraph newspaper in a big city called Calcutta. And uh, after that, I worked in Sunday Observer, Business India, and even BBC in London. While I was a journalist, I was traveling through the hills of Nepal when I came across rows of villages with missing girls. And I decided to tell the story in a documentary I uh, won an Emmy for that documentary. Yeah, the the
0: documentary was called Reversing the Trend. Um, Very, very important, 1996.
1: Actually, the documentary is called The Selling of Innocence. Reversing the Trend is what they put on the photo.
0: Right, (laughs) right. The Selling of Innocence, as you say, yes, it was from 1996.
1: Yes, and it's on my website if anyone wants to watch it on ruchiragupta.com. So I, I made the documentary and I am in New York Um, you know, getting the award and everyone is applauding. And when I looked out at the bright lights, all I could see were the eyes of the women who had told their stories in my documentary. They were prostituted women trafficked from Nepal living in the brothels of Bombay. And I had, um, all they wanted to do was to break their silence so that they could save their daughters from their same destiny. And you know, I I realized in that moment when I was looking at the applause and actually could see the eyes of the women that I did not want to use the documentary to the Emmy to build a career in journalism. I wanted to use the Emmy to make a difference. So I did a few things uh, with the Emmy. I took it to the United Nations and to the US Congress and asked for laws by showing the documentary which would decriminalize the women and girls you know not pick them up from the streets and jail them or anything but give them more support and services and criminalize those who were buying them and selling them and today we have the us trafficking victim protection act we have the un protocol to end trafficking in persons and i'm proud to say that i played in a I played a part in that but even more importantly I wanted to help the women. So I went back to Bombay and I asked them, what can we do? And the women said that they wanted, they had four dreams. They wanted education for their children to save them from prostitution. They wanted a job which was uh, free of violence for themselves. They wanted a um, room which, of their own, which was safe. And they wanted punishment of those who had bought them and sold them, those who had brokered away their dreams. So that literally became my business plan. I set up an NGO with the 22 women in prostitution who had told their stories to me. The NGO was called and is called Apne Aap.
0: Yeah, it's A M P N E. It sounds like app, but it's A A P. It's a wonderful story. Um, Rachira, tell me a little bit more about what you discovered in the hills of Nepal. Um, that, that drove uh, making uh, your award-winning movie, uh, The Selling of Innocence, in 1996. What exactly did you see and uh, why was that so profoundly shocking and remains shocking today?
1: You know, when I was hiking through the hills of Nepal, I came across rows of villages with missing girls. And that itself was puzzling to me. What does that
0: mean? I mean, were they did they have photos of the girls on the walls, on the trees? How did you know?
1: I couldn't see kids. I couldn't see girls, you know. And so uh, I would go in a village and there would be men sitting drinking tea and playing cards. I would see boys playing cricket or, you know, just going about chores. I could see older women, you know, um, carrying loads of fuel, like firewood and stuff. But I couldn't see kids. I couldn't see girls. So I asked, where are the girls? Because I thought maybe they all are in a school somewhere. It might be an interesting story to go look at the school in these Himalayan hamlets. And to my horror, some of the men, of course, became hostile and would not answer. But some said, don't you know, they all are in Bombay. And that was kind of puzzling. I asked them, I said, how could so many people be in Bombay? Because Bombay was 1,400
0: kilometers away. Bombay now... Renamed Mumbai.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's now Mumbai. And um, these villages were so remote, they were even like two hours from the highway. So, of course, as a journalist, I stopped hiking and I began to follow the trail. And I ended up in the brothels of Mumbai. Uh, And what I saw there shook me. As a journalist, I'd covered war, I'd covered famine, I'd covered hunger. But I'd never seen this kind of exploitation of one human being by another. And that too of little girls on it, I mean,
0: you were an experienced journalist, as you say, you work for the BBC. Yes. You, is this not known in India, this story? Or wasn't it known?
1: You know, it's known and unknown. It's a truth which is in plain sight, but invisible, because I think we all feel uncomfortable when we see a shivering girl standing uh, at a street corner in absolutely cold winter, uh, smiling with makeup on her face. And we know her smile is fake, but we can't do anything about it, we think. And she's
0: shamefully young. She's
1: looking older, you know, trying to look older. And we know all of it subconsciously. But because we feel we can't do anything about it, we suppress it. And so there's that. Then there's, of course, the stigmatization of red light areas of prostitution. So, you know, we don't see something because we don't want to see it. And, you know, especially the stories behind that smile, that fake smile on the girl that she was trafficked, that she was brought here. And that is the silence that my documentary broke, which is why I won an Emmy, you know, because I think I showed that prostitution is an outcome and trafficking is the process behind it. It's so, not a, so no you so
0: book. you discovered the fact that this was an organized business, an industry in in and exporting underage girls from these villages to um to big Indian cities. Is this a particular problem in India, or is it true in much of the rest of the world, particularly Southeast Asia, of course, which is associated with with uh, with prostitution, and indeed the West in in the United States and in Western Europe?
1: It's a universal problem. The United Nations says that human trafficking is the second largest crime in the world. The International Labour Organization says that 25 million people are victims of trafficking on any given day. The United States uh, says that, uh, you know, there's any number between 100,000 to 300,000 victims of trafficking in the U.S. at any time. And do you know, surveys reveal, research reveals that the average age of a girl being trafficked in India is between 9 and 13, and the United States between 13 and 15.
0: Yeah, it's for, for anyone, particularly if, if, if you have a daughter, it's it's horrifying. So we have this this huge problem. Let's get to the book. The book is out this week. I kick and I fly. Is it specifically written for teenage girls, richiro or for teenagers in general?
1: It's written in the voice of a teenage girl who's 14 years old from a nomadic tribe. And she is about to be sold into prostitution when the carnival comes into town, um, when a woman's right advocate enrolls her in a Kung Fu program. And through the practice of Kung Fu, she discovers the power of her body and learns to fight with it, for it. With the help, of a few friends you know the women's right advocate a mother who stands up to an alcoholic father the mother's friends who are around her and who feel something should change so um it is of course first for young people because I want young people to know about tough issues in their lives and how to challenge them I also want them to learn how to navigate things like body shaming bullying um even food insecurity and homelessness, and know that fighting injustice is possible, and they can win. So yes, it is for young people. I'm passing the baton on as an activist, and it's a call to action, this book, to disrupt the silence around these issues. But it's also for anyone who wants to read about human trafficking and sex trafficking. And they can do this through the voice of a girl from a community which is suffering from intergenerational prostitution, And they can do it not feeling daunted or frightened or, you know, even feeling, you know, sometimes when we read about a tough subject, we feel very crushed ourselves and it's too much pain and horror. In my book, there is pain and horror, but it's in the background and the triumph of the human spirit and the courage and the fierceness to fight back is the foreground of, because this girl fights back. Hira, her name is, it means diamond in Hindi. And she's a diamond in the dust. And she fights. She fights for an egg. She fights to get her mother, um, find some food. She fights so that her brother can stay on in science class. She fights to go back to school because the school has expelled her. And she fights the entire community for the superstition in thinking that something horrible will happen if they do not sell their daughters into prostitution. So she's a fighter through and through. And of course, she ultimately fights organized crime. And it's all based on truth. Uh, You know, it's based on true life experiences inside my NGO Apne Aap. I began writing I Kick and I Fly when a girl just like Hira won a gold medal in karate in my NGO. And I thought, you know, here she is. She lives in a mud hut where the roof is leaking. She's oh, gets hungry every day. And yet she stayed on in school and won a gold medal. I, my heart was kind of swelling and I wanted to share the story with the world because I think young people also don't need to know that big problems can be challenged and, uh, you know, not to get daunted, but to do something. And this is a story of hope based on truth. And I think parents and teachers also need to, talk to young people about things which are prevalent in their lives and nobody talks to them about it the uh, the center for disease control recently brought out a report in uh, about youth uh, teen mental health in america and they said that you know teens are reporting sadness uh, suicidal tendencies and the root causes are sexual abuse body shaming bullying uh food insecurity and But,
0: but there i'm not excusing any of those things but there's a, a there's a, a a huge gulf between that and 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 selling your twelve year old daughter into prostitution isn't there
1: Of course, it's a a very big difference from like a girl being sold into prostitution where she's going to be raped by eight or ten men every night for five years. It's essentially
0: a a death sentence.
1: It is. It is. You know, the average age of a woman surviving in prostitution is between 30 and 35. You know, mortality rates in prostitution are higher than those even of uh, people going to war, of soldiers. So it is it is terrible, and yes, yet that is of course an extreme situation. Into mean, Hira, um, and she's from a nomadic tribe, dirt poor, and there's organised crime around her preying on bodies like of girls like hers. But also, don't forget that here in America, girls are being trafficked between the ages of 13 and 15, where we have the infrastructure, where we have ability to combat it, and yet we don't. And I think one of the reasons is the silence. Because Yeah, there, there I was
0: doing some research for this show and there's some stuff on GAO on human trafficking and then uh something on the hill about human trafficking is exactly what you say, one of the biggest crises of our time, if not one of the one of the two biggest crises of the time. How do we, we fight it? And you mentioned um shaming people who use prostitutes there's a initiative in in texas to criminalize it should prostitution um be criminalized of course it's a huge debate particularly in northern europe it's been decriminalized uh, it's a complicated debate where do you stand on it
1: so i'm for the third way where i believe that the women and girls should be decriminalized and offered services so they can actually have have real choices which are not bare body invasion and exploitation. And therefore, we need more budgets for the last girl, as I call her, for the person who's poor, female, and from an oppressed caste or community. And uh, so, you know, there has to be investment in her basic needs like food, clothing, shelter, education, um, protection, legal protection. But I do want the traffickers to be punished severely. And I do think that sex buyers also need to be punished because otherwise they go around creating the demand uh, for little girls. And I have heard them ask for seven-year-olds. So I think they do need to be punished because only that can. I want, like in the domestic violence movement, we were able to shift the blame from the victim to the perpetrator. So here too, there's a victim, that little girl who's trapped in a brothel because some 45-year-old man wants to come and rape her. And even if money is exchanged, her body is never going to come back. And so they the traffickers and the sex buyers to be punished and the women and girls to be decriminalized, not punished. Instead, be given lots of
0: services. What about the parents? Should they be legally accountable for this?
1: Of course, they should be legally accountable for this because they are supposed to be guardians uh, and, you know, the welfare of the child is theirs. So of course, they should be held legally accountable for it and um, you know i think they need to be told that that they are legally accountable
0: how has the internet changed this business uh Richira? of course it's a huge amount of online pornography um real-time uh, pornography uh, chat rooms and that sort of thing has this made it in some ways harder to control child pornography and child prostitution?
1: The two are interlinked: child pro- pornography and child prostitution. I call it prostituting of children because somebody does it to a child. And I call a child prostitute a prostituted child because it's either circumstances or individuals who put the child into that situation of exploitation. So I there's a big, big link because uh, very often now, with the increase of technology, the internet has become the way for traffickers to, um, you know, seduce kids, season them and groom them, as we call it, and then uh, recruit them into uh, prostitution. So how do they do it? Uh, you know, they'll have fake IDs, they'll have chatbots, and uh, they also are processing immense amounts of data through AI-powered tools. and. Um, mm-hmm. And so they know what time a child is uh, watching what on uh, the computer while doing homework or otherwise, uh, which child has used the word suicide. Uh, You know, they know the keywords also. And then if it's a boy, a cartoon character will pop up on uh, the TV screen saying, do you want to have some fun with me? And two clicks later, this 12-year-old is watching a woman crying, being penetrated in every part of her body and asking for more. So he begins to connect sex with violence and he begins to think uh, no means yes. Yes means no. And this is when they know that they can start recruiting the next generation of sex buyers. The same thing with girls. You know, some girl says, oh, I want to commit suicide. I hate myself. I hate my body. Nobody loves me. You know, they pick up these keywords to process data. And those are the girls fake ID person will pop up on her social media platforms saying I love you you're so pretty you know I I think your photographs are amazing let's chat do you want to be my friend and especially during the lockdown when kids were cut off from each other you know they're talking to people online and then he'll say your shirt off then take a photograph they perform sexual acts and then they're blackmailed this is called seasoning and grooming and then they're asked to meet this person in a hotel room. And then one thing leads to another. So uh, trafficking has become, traffickers have begun to use online platforms much faster than we have. Of course, then they start selling the girls online also.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: the word on the internet right now is Ukrainian girls.
0: Yeah. And of course, I'm sure that Syrian girls are popular and yeah. girls from all these parts of the world of enormous vulnerability. Let's cheer ourselves up a bit, because it's such a depressing subject. Um, As you said, you're a journalist, Emmy-winning journalist. You're founder of the anti-sex trafficking NGO, Apnea. uh, And uh, you've always wanted to write literature, which is this is your first piece of fiction. What was the challenge for you as this uh, very successful uh, journalist and activist of one kind or another? How did you find the process of writing fiction? Was it quite uh, challenging?
1: It was, because as a journalist, you're used to writing plain facts. And uh, we also use the inverted pyramid structure where we give away the story right at the top of the article and then give all the analysis of it point by point after the main point. In uh, literature, what you have to do is build the imagination of your audience, build suspense, build fear, anger, and how your hero overcomes all of these so I had to, and also you have to flesh out the story by making your reader go into the places, um, you know, they, can, they should be able to hear the sounds agonist Hira can hear. They should be able to sense the fear that she uh, feels. They should be able to see the street that she walks on full of brothels and girls sitting under yellow lights. Um, they should be able to uh, feel it on their skin, in their heart, in their mind from all the five senses. So I had to put in a lot of visual um, uh, to the plot. And, uh, you know, initially my plot was very fast paced because Hira was acting and acting and acting to free herself from being sold into the sex trade. So she was kicking the class bully. She was um, biting the hand of her kidnapper she was um learning uh kung fu in a park every day by you know balancing and uh, jumping and all of that and uh, she was even raiding uh the cupboard of her mentor to find clues to her best friend who had gone missing like you know because her mentor was also investigating some other missing girl the hostel owner who had enrolled her in a kung fu program so um You know, I had to slow down the pace. My editor would say, slow it down, slow it down. Let your reader understand where you are and what uh, Hira is doing. And so I had to bring in interiority. I had to bring in um, dialogue. I had to sometimes shut my eyes and go to sleep at night imagining where Hira was, what she was doing. And interestingly enough, once you develop the characters, the characters begin to dictate the story to you. So I would actually wake up the next morning knowing what I would write because I had the story in my head dictated by or her brother Salman. It was, it was quite a fascinating experience. And
0: the book is out this week. Uh, Kirkus, which is the industry standard for reviewing new books, called it a triumphant debut. I wonder how you feel, given you've got some movie background yourself about all these superhero movies, the Wakanda style movies, Black Panther. Is this, it, to me, this sounds in a way as if it was written as a superhero uh, narrative, and yet at the same time, it's much more grounded in real life. How do you feel about the fashion for superhero? movies and narratives? uh,
1: I like some of them and I don't like some of them you know and that is because some of them seem too remote and too action-oriented and they're not grounded in anything and some of them become human, they have relationships and they live in a community so it depends on the superhero but I'll tell you something uh, you know when I was growing up I would look for girl heroes in the books I read. I was a bookworm. I used to read nonstop and there were hardly any. There was, I used to love Tintin because I wanted to be a reporter.
0: Yeah, a and romantic. what's remarkable about Tintin is there are no girls at all. Exactly. Well, there know? aren't any exactly. women. There's, the, there's the, the opera singer and I think that's Bianca.
1: Bianca, yeah. <laughs> Bianca
0: Castafiore and that's about it. <laughs>
1: That's right and so I always wanted Tintin to be a girl and of course that wasn't possible and then I also grew up on a British author called Enid Blyton when I was mm. young.
0: And Enid she- Bliton yeah we all did in England um, yeah was it the famous five the famous, famous five
1: and if you remember that in them uh, you know there's a character again Fatty is a boy Then there's another one, you know, where um, they they have a detective club and there's a girl who's quite uh, bold and solves things. Her name is Georgina, but she wants to be a boy. She calls herself George. And Mm -hmm. all those things stuck with me because when I had a chance to write a story and I had a girl who had won a karate gold gold medal, in a red light district in a dirt poor village it was a true story and i'm writing fiction based my characters are based on truth but they are characters in a fictional story so i could put imagination and ideas and some of my own dreams into it and uh, so my girl is of course a hero she is um, almost like a superhero but she doesn't put on a pantsuit she doesn't have magical powers she has the courage of finding the powers inside herself, because as she practices kung fu, she discovers the power of her body, and she learns to fight for it. You know, she learns that her, her body is not an object to be preyed upon, but a vessel through which she can change. Her it's world. a
0: wonderfully inspiring story, Richard. But how realistic is it for a twelve-year-old living in a in a in a village in the Himalayas to actually realize this? Do you think?
1: I invite you to Forbizganj. I would love to
0: if you, uh, you but that would be wonderful.
1: I do invite you there because you will meet girls from my NGO who've broken burning tiles, have black belts in karate and have kicked the teeth in of a few bullies. Um, And this happened inside the red light district. In my NGO, because, you know, uh, in the NGO, we were literally the NGO was in the red light district. So it's a strip of brothels. The criminal overlords that I describe in the book as fictional characters did live there and keep an a lookout for, you know, how many young girls are there? How many can we sell when the annual cattle fair comes into town? And uh, I started this community classroom right in there. And uh, then I started a hostel because it wasn't safe to not have them away from the red light area at night. And then the traffickers would show up in the hostel. They would jump over the walls to kidnap the girls. If the girls came home for weekends, to be with their parents, they'd pick them up. One family was actually locked up, and I had to go in and figure out how to get them out. So um, I had to hire a security guard for my hostel. I had to make the walls go higher and all of that. But I thought, you know. If these girls are going to be threatened like this and bullied or kidnapped or whatever, at least let them put up a good fight. And every day when I was walking from my home to the red light area to this hostel, I used to see two people teaching karate in the, near the rice fields. So I went to them and asked them, I said, will you teach my girls uh, karate? And they said, yes. And transformation really did begin. Because those girls put on those white uniforms and they had yellow bells first, and then how one girl won a gold medal, and everybody began to feel a sense of pride. You know, even her own father who wanted to sell her thought, Oh, my daughter. Yeah, I'm
0: curious, Richard, what has been the response of, of parents? I mean, I can see great shame. On the other hand, for most of the parents, or many of the parents, I assume that the revenue, if that's the right word, uh, for this was essential perhaps just to feed themselves and their families
1: absolutely that's what they believed it wasn't essential but that's what they knew and they knew this since the time of british colonialism because uh, you know when the british Br- when britain had colonized india they had passed a law called the criminal uh, tribe amendment act uh, under which they had labeled certain nomadic groups as criminals and uh, just because they resisted colonialism. So they threw them out of the forest, saying the forests belong to the government. That's where they live. Then they said, you can't trade in the medicines you make, or the utensils you make, or the dairy products that you sell. You can't trade in that because, you know, companies, made in England companies, had to come and sell those products so they were bad. then they were banned they would do it secretly so then they were told you can't move from one place to another because uh, and you have to report to us at midnight and at 4 in the morning if you're going to do it secretly and so these people suddenly became landless livelihoodless and they had to become squatters in the hands of overlords in the lands of overlo- of uh, landlords and uh, they were then um, forced to do the most menial tasks, but the women had to become sexually available. And slowly they forgot everything except pimping and prostitution. So the bo- pimping was passed down from father to son and um, prostitution from mother to daughter, which is why I said that in such communities, it became intergenerational. And even rituals were created around it, like marriage to a banana tree, mm-hmm. which I write out in my book, I Kick and I Fly. So when India became independent, uh, this law was of course removed from the books, but the stigma, the custom, the marginalisation stayed. And you know, these people had no idea that life could be different. The government had put into place a lot of entitlements, like low-cost food and housing, and all that for oppressed communities.
0: Um, Mm, I mean, richer people use the metaphor of colonialism as looting or pillaging or raping. Maybe the metaphor is quite literal. Let's end. Congratulations again on the book, Uh, I Kick and I Fly, a very inspiring uh, approach to fighting child prostitution. Uh, What can people do? Anyone who's listening to this is going to be horrified. Most of us choose not to think about it because it's just too depressing. But what can we do? I mean... Given the reality that most of us can't dedicate our lives like you have to this, what what can ordinary people do to try to address this this terrible problem, this curse, which, as you say, is is one of the two biggest problems in the world today, and most of us choose not to discuss it?
1: So, people, first of all, I ask you to buy the book.
0: Because, mm, well, that goes without saying, Ruchira. Ru- Ru- I'm assuming that a lot of the <laughs> proceeds will go to your nonprofit
1: Everything I do, all the proceeds go to that. So I encourage people to buy the book because by doing that and sharing the book, you break the silence. And then if you want to do more, go to the website of ruchiragupta.com or com or my NGO, Apne.org, because between the three, there are resources, calls to action, you can educate yourself, you can become aware, you can act, you can volunteer, and you can donate. And every penny counts because uh, it'll pay towards another girl learning karate, or going to school, or buying a textbook, or a school uniform.